Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican podcast. Today we're going to talk about Samuel Danforth. And he's an alchemist or an alchemy enthusiast from the colonial days of the American colonies. And before you go off and Google Samuel Danforth, our Samuel Danforth is not to be confused with another person by the same name uh, who lived from 1626 to 1674. So that would be the wrong guy. And that guy is also very interesting. He's a Puritan minister, preacher, poet, and astronomer. But he was born in England and moved to Massachusetts. Also went to Harvard. So it gets kind of so if you if you look up the Wikipedia for Samuel Danforth, you're looking at the wrong guy. Our Samuel Danforth, if I if you're still with us, I'm with you. Was born in Dorchester, Massachusetts, in 1696, and graduated from Harvard College in 1715 which the other SD graduated in like 1680-something, so they're, they're pretty close together. And in fact, both of those Samuel Danforths had sons named Samuel Danforth, so you, and, and one of them is also famous enough to be mentioned here or there. So um, yeah, so, but back to our Sammy. Yeah, so what's interesting is, is during his stay in Harvard, is we've mentioned this before, but Harvard included classes on alchemy, and this was kind of a... a I don't, I don't know if it was common or popular, but this was definitely something you could study there. And um, so he started collecting, he was very interested in alchemy, started collecting some books, including a manuscript, Compendium Physicae by Charles Morton. And Morton was a Puritan who emigrated to Massachusetts in 1686, so kind of a contemporary. And, and this is an interesting point, too. Um, some of our listeners might be familiar with this, that, that Harvard was really a religious-based institution at this time uh, during the colonial days of, uh, of America. And so uh, it wouldn't be unheard of for Puritan sort of viewpoints to be in the, the, the classroom here, as well as having uh, that connection to alchemy. Because at the time, we're talking about the, uh, the late 1600s, early 1700s, correct? Yeah. So that, that there was a connection between religious belief and um, alchemy. It wasn't really considered an occult out, outside the, the circles of, of religious influence. In, in fact, there's, there's, um, there's enough Puritan alchemy connections that it might warrant a, a show one of these days, because it comes up quite a bit. Um, according to the Alchemy Journal, and I'll, I'll give more details on where you can find that at the end, um, his compendium was a kind of a blend of science of the time and also with Aristotle and, and that kind of thing. And as an example, one kind of long section was devoted to the artifice of gold by alchemy. Alchemy spelled with a Y. It's almost like the old uh, chemistry kind of thing. And also, or, or the finding of the philosopher's stone. Philosopher's stone looks like it has too many Ys in it. And it even makes the claim that some have done it. Such are called the adept, or adepti, as it's spelled. And he listed among them Lully, Ramon Lull, we've done an episode on him, Paracelsus, which we've done an episode, and his disciple, Van Helmont, which um, 
also a really interesting character. You know, so Danforth uh, really made Cambridge his home. It's just a, just a stone's throw away from the college itself. So it was pretty close to, to where, where he would be um, really kind of getting into the, the area of intellectual discussions on, on alchemy. At that time, you know, he learned uh, to kind of dabble in a lot of different fields and, and really kind of test the waters on uh, what was offered at Harvard. Danforth not only uh, became a probate judge, uh, but he also kind of dabbled in medicine, okay? So he was kind of a, a man of many different talents. And as a matter of fact, he got to the point where he was offering smallpox inoculations in the 1730s during one of the outbreaks. And uh, so that was kind of somewhat important as well. Okay, so during the smallpox epidemic of, of that 1730 year, uh, you can imagine there was a lot of uh, uh, hysteria going around about, about how many people would catch this and can we contain it. Uh, Cambridge itself, as a, as, a, as a township, voted its disapproval and asked Danforth to remove his patients to where they couldn't infect anybody else. So you can see the, the quarantine aspect of what was going on with this. Um, however, you know, he, he was still very well respected for reaching out to the community and, and trying to take care of the small, smallpox epidemic, um, so much so that he was elected to the council in the upper house of the Massachusetts Colonial Legislature, which was a pretty high station, in 1739, just nine years after the start of the epidemic. You know, he remained a, a member of that body for over 30 years, so mm -hmm. he was well entrenched in, in, the, in the body politic of Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, so also according to, to a blog post, I found that he may have started his alchemical library as early as 1721. He also had some noteworthy success as a chief justice in Massachusetts, which he served for some 34 years. Now, alchemy isn't just, but um, I don't want to tie in his alchemical reputation with his medical reputation or his uh, reputation as a judge because in fact when his reputation as uh, as an alchemist kind of grew he started be to become publicly publicly ridiculed and uh, this this actually happened in the press in 1754 specifically for his alchemical studies so in so so keep in mind that um, yeah alchemy already was kind of you know past its peak and was already kind of seen as as you know kind of a, either a charlatan thing or, or it had a bad reputation as you know not even being scientific anymore because there were already other theories out there what's interesting to me is that in 1773 now this is you know getting really close to the revolution already he wrote to his longtime friend Benjamin Franklin who you may have heard of and he even offered uh, Benjamin Franklin a piece of the Philosopher's Stone. So this is this I found really interesting. So Franklin himself didn't really, you know, despite all of his other experiments and, and his vast curiosity and this entire scientific knowledge, he wasn't really interested in in laboratory alchemy itself. But he did kind of just within the scientific community, he did know several active practitioners of, you know, experimental alchemy. And he was also a leading member of the Ephrata and Fairmont Park communes. Now, Travis, this is really important for those of us that, that love Benjamin Franklin. I mean, he was just one of those great American uh, figures that you just, yeah, you just can't get enough information about the guy. He was a, a, a very well-known uh, person in cer certain circles within not only England, but also France. Yep. Um, he was a frontiersman. I, I, one of my favorite stories about Benjamin Franklin was when he was coming over to visit uh, uh, the, the who's who of France. He wore a coonskin cap and, a, and, 
and, uh, and, and bare furs, and they thought he might as well walked off the, the surface of Mars. I mean, he was a rock star uh, coming from the wild and open area. So he was a great guy to, to, to uh, befriend because this is important as well. Danforth wanted to be connected to Benjamin Franklin for a couple reasons, and Franklin wanted to be connected to the circles that Danforth traveled around in alchemy because still in Europe between the American and, and uh, French societies, there was a, a big, a big uh, um, uh, uh, love for al alchemical sort of study still. Yeah. And so they both kind of had this sort of mutual relationship and want and need from, from each other's friendship. I, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting that um, just such a scientific figure like Benjamin Franklin that, you know, we all associate with these big inventions and, you know, really creative mind that he did actually have an interest in this. So this is kind of new to me that, you know, he, this was still a time period where alchemy was on the decline, but Benjamin Franklin, in fact, I have a quote here. So when Benjamin Franklin wrote back on the 25th of July in 1773, uh, he says, I rejoice, therefore, in your kind intentions of including me in the benefits of that inestimable stone, which curing all diseases, even old age itself. So remember, elixir of life and philosopher's stone are often, you know, interchangeable, Next, yeah. right? So, uh, he, and he says, so this, uh, this cure for all diseases will enable us to see the future glorious state of our America, enjoying in full security her own liberties and offering in her bosom a participation of them to all the oppressed of other nations. So he's writing about the Philosopher's Stone here, you know, three years before the Declaration of Independence. I almost want to salute this. It's, this, it's this weird. It sounds, yeah, like a, it's, it sounds like the American flag is flying right in front of us when he's saying this. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I don't know if he was just, uh, Travis, at one point just trying to, uh, you know, uh, ingratiate himself to Danforth by saying all these flowery prose about, sure. you know, an emerging democracy And that, that could very well be, yeah. Yeah, and, and then afterwards going, geez, a philosopher's stone, he's really, he's really bringing that up again. Yeah. You know, it, it who could knows be, what he was thinking. It could be, or maybe he's thinking, hey, you know, we're the ones to discover it, not, not some... Uh, you know, country in 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 Europe. So yeah, but it, well, hard to, hard to say his intentions. But going yeah, back to what I just said about his connections, how important not important it's essential that he had the French Benjamin Franklin had the French on his side. Any way he can get in, if it's by hook or by crook or by having a connection to what was considered you know maybe an outside level of science with alchemy, if that got him into the courts in France to kind of uh, really push the American experiment along, then so be it. And I think that if he was able to write like this, then this might be seen by other, you know, alchemists that, you know, he was he was of like-minded, you know, uh, a thought process yeah. here. Yeah, and unfortunately, I couldn't find a whole lot more on his life. So if, if anybody has, has ever heard of this guy before, by all means, send it in and let me know. But he, he died in 1777, and then his son, Samuel Danforth Jr., and not the only Samuel Danforth Jr. living in Massachusetts at the time, but he, uh, Samuel Jr. inherited his books. Samuel Danforth Jr. also was interested in, in medi medicine and scientific kind of studies and, and had a career in this. But uh, the cost of, of following that career forced him to donate his father's books to the, the Boston Athenaeum in 1812. Now, the books, there's a lot of interesting stuff about these books. So they're both signed, they're all signed by both Danforths. They're heavily annotated, which is pretty cool because it, it kind of shows like, you know, uh, over Some validity. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's like 25 years of study of, of, you know, just of, of alchemy kind of written, written in, in the, in the margins of these books here. So there's some 21 volumes 
and a lot of the kind of usual suspects that you would expect in an alchemical library, including like Philodice's Secrets Revealed, which um, was written in London in, in 1699, which I bring up because we did an episode on Philolithes, who's another, um, you know, colonial alch alchemist. Yeah, and in fact, um, in that same blog post, Pete found an obituary of Samuel Danforth. So, well, I'll tell you, I, I've used my my skills in uh, my mad skills in, in family genealogy, and, and this, as a genealogist or an amateur genealogist, I'll tell you that. Uh, this is like gold to find stuff like this. Yeah. You know, so um, it, this is what this is what it said um, after the death in 1777 that Dr. Reverend uh, Ezra Stiles of Newport was so interested in what was going on here that he had to say this in his diary that was found. Last week, the Honorable Samuel Danforth Esquire of Cambridge died in Boston at the age of 81. He was deeply studied in the writings and adepts, believing that the Philosopher's Stone, a reality, and per perhaps for chemical knowledge, might have passed among the chemists, all right. So, and the rest, interesting. It's kind of written in Hebrew. There's so, a Hebrew word there, yeah. Yeah, which which is which is strange. I mean, that, that might be something for a for a novel <laughs> to kind of look into. But you know, to have this, to actually have this in print, uh, to say that it was important that he believed in philosopher's stone, you know, yeah. I mean, that still would have been eye catching back in the in the late 18th century to see someone actually write that in an obituary, and you know, in, in or not in an obituary or in in a uh, uh, mentioned in someone's diary that would have been published. So again, that's some great stuff, uh, you know, for this family to kind of have that information about who was Samuel Danforth. Yeah, the, he seemed like a really interesting character, and I wish I knew more about his life and and things surrounding him. But um, unfortunately, I couldn't find much. But um, what I what I did find is due to a blog called Boston1775.blogspot.co.uk, and uh, there there's a short article on him which. Was uh, it was called was Dr. Dan was Dr. Samuel Danford smuggling hay, which was actually talking about his son. <laughs> so, and a lot of that information um, he got from AlchemyLab.com, which is the Alchemy Journal, and there was a really long article, which is also where I got some other information from, like uh, Philolethes, for instance, called the History of Alchemy in America, and. Um, yeah, I'll probably use that as, as another source for, for a couple other episodes. A lot of interesting characters in that article, too, if you want to take a look. Going all the way up to the 20th century, really. And Travis, so. this is our, our, our second program on an American dealing with alchemy. Is that correct? So far, yes. So far, yes. Yeah, I have a couple others on my sites. And, right. and um, also, the there's a couple kind of secret societies, or, or you know, let's call them esoteric communities, which also, you know, Basically, the ones that that I mentioned with Benjamin Franklin, and uh, also there's a, there is a kind of a Puritan connection with with some of these guys, so that's that's something I'll, I'll do some reading on and and look into a little bit more. Um, but yeah, really interesting stuff. So there you have it. Great. Well, thanks very much. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com, or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page, or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.